All right, we've got everyone with a seat. Who would be willing to volunteer to open up in prayer this morning? Jeremy. Amen. All right, so we are on page 28 of your booklet, chapter 10 on effectual calling, and we got mostly through section 2, so that's where we are going to pick up. So if you want to turn there, chapter 10, section 2, and we'll read the whole thing and then pick up where, uh, where we left off again. This effectual call flows from God's free and special grace alone, not from anything foreseen in those called. Neither does the call arise from any power or action on their part. They are totally passive in it. They are dead in sins and trespasses until they are made alive and renewed by the Holy Spirit. By this, they are enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. This response is enabled by a power that is no less than that which raised Christ from the dead. And I believe we got up to uh, footnote number eight. So that's where we're going to pick up. And let's uh, hand those verses out and then we'll read that section here. Who wants to take 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14? Okay, Lisa. Ephesians 2 verse 5. Keith and John five twenty five. Tim. Okay. So let's read that. So after footnote seven here. They are totally passive in it. They are dead in sins and trespasses until they are made alive and renewed by the Holy Spirit. And who had first Corinthians? Lisa, go ahead. Okay, this is a verse that I used often in teaching apologetics last semester because Christian evangelists and Christian apologists need to understand that this is true. Your arguments, as important as they are, is not ultimately going to be uh, decisive because as an evangelist, as an apologist, as a friend, you have to go into every conversation knowing that the person you're talking to is spiritually dead. Okay? Now, the Holy Spirit may very well use your argument or use your presentation of the gospel to make that sinner alive. But you have to realize going in, they will not uh, accept your argument until or unless the Holy Spirit grips their heart. Okay? Because ultimately... Uh, the logic of Christianity, which is the source of all true logic, is uh, foreign to them because this involves lordship, bending the knee to the Lord Jesus. And until or unless the Holy Spirit softens their heart, they're not going to take that step. So that does two things. One, when we're evangelizing, it takes the pressure off of you to go home afterward and say, you know what, 
my friend still isn't a believer. I must be doing something wrong. Maybe you are. Maybe you can learn something. That's fine. But ultimately, it's not your fault because you said something the wrong way or because you made an error in judgment. And secondly, you can approach the next encounter with confidence because it's ultimately the Holy Spirit who can raise dead people to life. Okay, so the pressure is off of you. You be faithful, and the Holy Spirit may very well use the seed that you put in the ground to raise this person to life, that they will see it. Anything on this verse in particular, or on that concept? Are we seeing that? A natural person does not accept them, will not accept the things of God, cannot, will not, doesn't want to. Okay? Okay. Then let's keep going uh, to Ephesians 2.5. Okay, there it is again. Okay, dead in trespasses. So if I would go to a cemetery uh, with a bottle of medicine and I've got some kind of miracle drug that solves every ailment that's every ever killed anyone, and I go start offering it at the graveyard, what's going to happen? Nothing. Okay? Nothing. Nothing will happen. These people are dead. Okay? They're not sick looking for a cure. They're dead in need of a resuscitation. Mercifully, that's exactly the business that the Holy Spirit is in, is breathing life into dead sinners. And we looked a little while back at Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. And that's exactly what Ezekiel is told to do. Go to the graveyard and start preaching. Well, that makes no sense. Preaching to dead bones? Nothing's going to happen. But God says, yeah, go, go start preaching to the dead bones. And what happens when Ezekiel starts preaching to the dead bones? Who knows the story? I can't hear you a little louder. The sinew starts to grow, right? And then God says, keep going. You're preaching pretty good. (laughs) Keep going. And then what? Some muscle starts building, right? Skin, and all of a sudden there's living people. That's what the power of the gospel does. We're preaching to dead bones, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, those dead bones get life breathed into them, and they come alive through the power of the gospel. Jeremy. That's right. Yes, the wind that rushes in is the, is the power of the Spirit, right? And we see that wind in the New Testament in a remarkable way. Where do we see that wind in the New Testament? Pentecost, yep. A mighty rushing wind, yep. The pneumos, or the wind, or the breath, or the Spirit of God. And, uh, well, I always like the connection of Latin and Greek into English. Who's got pneumatic tires in their car? Pneumos, air. Wind, breath, okay? A pneumatic tire has the spirit in it, the breath, the air, the wind, okay? The Holy Spirit is the pneumos of God. Say that again? Same idea. Also, um, when Paul talks to Timothy about the inspiration of the scriptures, 
We just get the word inspired, which is a fine word, but it's a limiting word in English. The Greek word is theonoustos. Okay, so you see that word there again, pneumos, air, wind of the spirit. Okay, um, and the reason inspired it can be a weak word is who would agree that if you read classic literature, some authors like C.S. Lewis or William Shakespeare are inspired? Okay, I'm not throwing the Bible under the bus at all when I say there's some guys that are inspired. Okay, um, but inspiration. Uh, can mean a range of things, and also what it can do is create an image where it's like Paul wrote his letters, or Moses wrote his law, or whatever, and then God looks at that and says, yeah, that's pretty good, I'm going to put my spirit in it, okay, after the fact. The word that Paul uses, theonoustos, to breathe out, that means God didn't put his spirit in there afterward, it means he breathed it out, (laughs) When Paul has his pen to paper, that is the Holy Spirit breathing out, theonoustos. He's expiring. It's expiration, not inspiration. Okay? It's, he's expiring, exhaling the word through the pen of Moses and Isaiah and Paul. Okay? So, uh, again, I hope you never look at the word pneumatic the same again. And in theology, the study of the Holy Spirit is called pneumatology. We're studying air. We're studying wind. We're studying the Spirit of God. Okay? Discussion on this. How dead people are made alive through the preaching of the gospel. It's all coming together. Then, John 5.25. All right, Tim. Do dead people hear things? Hmm. What did you just read? Amen. Yep. A dead man just heard something, right? That is the Spirit of God. A dead man just heard the gospel. And the sinew and the flesh start coming together and the blood starts pumping and people come alive to spiritual things. Okay? And I'm going to stop and say here, this is such a freeing truth not just in terms of apologetics, not just in terms of our evangelistic encounters, but even the way we think about church. Even the way we think about church. How many churches, and no one would actually say this, but how much of church in the North American scene is dedicated to entertaining goats so they'll come back again? This completely takes that pressure away. Peter, feed my sheep. You don't need to run a circus for the goats. Just feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Okay? You don't need a circus production. Feed my lambs. Okay? And the Spirit will do His work. So we don't need tools apart from the gospel to get people to be born again. The power is in the gospel. So we just faithfully proclaim the gospel week in and week out. Go to the highways and byways. Yes, we should be evangelistic. But a church service, ultimately, we want people to convert. We want people to hear the gospel. But ultimately, it's about feeding God's lambs, feeding God's sheep. And that takes pressure off of the innovative spirit um, that can sometimes take over. 
That's a great insight. Did everyone hear Jeremy? Okay. If you, if you work with livestock and you feed your animals well and nature runs its course, it's going to be a reproducing flock. Okay. Christians reproduce. And they reproduce biologically, but they also reproduce through evangelism, through sharing the gospel, through inviting people to church, explaining the hope that's in you. Okay? Christians are to reproduce. Uh, on that note, I heard a great line that I shared with some of you this last week about the importance of education and catechesis. Now I forget for a minute where I heard it. But it said, basically, Christians reproduce in the bedroom, atheists reproduce in the classroom. It's like, wow, there is actually <laughs> a lot to that. Okay? Okay, so uh, I shared that with some of you guys. Where, where was that? What, yeah, but where was it? Haunt, there we go, yes. There, yes, it was on the Haunted Cosmos. Yes, we talked about it at Men's Theology Night. Okay? Uh, but we have a duty to train little ones in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Alfred. Amen. Amen. Including getting you into that conversation in the first place, right? Yeah. Including the chance encounter. Amen. Yep. Very good. Anything else on this? Application time. I'm not, well, I'll, I'll include biologically here, but I'm thinking beyond that as well. Are we a reproducing people? Let's think about that, okay? For you young couples that can actually reproduce, do it to the glory of God. But for the rest of us, reproducing spiritual children is also important. Are we a reproducing people? Are we out in the highways and byways sharing the gospel? Okay, do we have evangelistic zeal in our hearts? And I hope we are. I trust we are. And if not, then let's get busy at it, okay? Let's keep going. By this, they are enabled to answer the call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. This response is enabled by a power that is no less than that which raised Christ from the dead. And who wants to read Ephesians 1, 19 and 20? Jolyn. Okay, good. Amen. Does it ever seem to you like when Paul's writing, he's, he's thinking one thought, and then as he gets into it, he just keep, can't stop himself? <laughs> he, just, right, he just flows over with the glory of God? This is a passage like that. Like, it's like he sat down, and I'm thinking I'm just going to write this, and then the sentence kind of started to write itself because he just he spills over with the glory of God. Okay, Is that us as well? Are we so full 
of Scripture? Are we so full of the Spirit of God that if someone touches you, it spills out? That's the kind of Christians we want to be. And it's all, what Jolene just read, how much is Paul magnifying himself there? Where, where is the glory pointed? Right? It's, it's all heavenward. It's all to the Lord Jesus. More discussion on this. Do we feel like we have now, or are getting, as we slowly but surely work through this, getting a picture of the biblical conception of what happens at a person's rebirth? And why rebirth is so important? And I'm going to stop here. I've, I've done this before, but I'm curious. I'd like to hear that. How much, whether in this church or in the broader Christian world, answer however you want, or from your past, whatever, how much emphasis is put on the rebirth? Too much relative to Scripture? Not enough or about right? Keith's saying in the big scene, he thinks probably not enough. In the broader world or in the Bible? (laughs) Yeah. But there's a logic there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, if sin isn't such a big problem, the rebirth isn't such a big deal. Right? We just need a life coach to help us. You're good the way you are. Yeah. Very true. There's that too. Yep. And that is a fair point too. I think relatively early on in his career, Billy Graham realized this was becoming a serious problem. You'd have thousands of people come, you know, an emotional altar call in the bus will wait for you and, you know, just as I am for the 49th time, right? Which is all good. And we don't know how many of those people that came forward were real converts, but they were starting to realize they'd come back a year later and nothing had changed, right? It's an emotional response uh, to an emotional situation and they started to realize we have to partner with local churches, right? These people have to get into a church after this or else the the coal is just going to grow cold, right? We've got we've to gotta strike while the fire is hot. Some, uh, you guys don't mind historical anecdotes, but Charles Spurgeon, when he used to preach, he was so exhausted after preaching, he would just go home. He wouldn't linger around the church because he preached his heart out every Sunday, and he was done. And often on Monday morning, they'd come to his office... And these people that had heard the gospel wanted to come and they wanted to know more. And he got criticized. And he said, you know, the previous pastor that was here before you, Mr. Spurgeon, he used to wait and he would deal with those people Sunday morning while the iron was still hot. And he said, well, I want to preach them so hot that they're still warm on Monday morning and they can come visit me then. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> I'm not saying there's right or wrong there. 
that's the approach that worked for Spurgeon and God blessed his ministry. If another guy may do it differently, then that's fine too. Lisa, were you just stretching? No. Well, it's Tim's comment, so I'll let Tim go. Yeah, the way I would answer that too, I wouldn't necessarily, well, maybe I would say the majority. But you look at the way God works with families all through Scripture, right? Timothy learned the Bible from his mom and his grandma. Right? Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. There is, should be, when things are working well, a family succession of the faith. But God is perfectly free to graft in bizarre people that you'd never expect. So we want to do both. We want to raise faithful families, and we also want to evangelize people that come from non-Christian backgrounds. And if I think here, too, that we have... You know what? (laughs) I'm going to stop here, because that's going to segue me. We were going to have a short little discussion here. Business-wise, that I completely dropped. Okay, this is a good segue. Um, In a church like this, too, we have uh, people of both types. Here's some of the testimonies of some of these guys that were angry atheists in university that have come to know the Lord. But my guess is most of us grew up in Christian homes to some extent or another. So God is, is free to do both. Anything else on this? That's Well, and that's the text we're in today. Yep. Yep. Amen. Howard just said, it shouldn't surprise us if a healthy tree bears good fruit. Right? It, it shouldn't surprise us. Now, does that mean everyone born to Christian parents is saved? Absolutely not. Does that mean there's no hope for those who come from bad families? Absolutely not. We're dealing with general reaping and sowing principles, not rules. Amen. More on this. Yeah. Yeah, and and again you know, train a child in the way he should go and he won't depart from it. God is faithful to a thousand generations, right? He visits iniquity two or three generations and faithfulness to a thousand. Now, does that mean I have a promise that all of my children and great-grandchildren will be Christians? No, I don't. But I do know God is faithful to a thousand generations, so I better parent them in that direction, expecting good fruit. Okay, are we good to stop there and switch to a membership meeting? I'm sorry, I completely dropped the ball on that. Good, any more discussion on this? Okay.